Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We're glad that you're joining us and have found us on whatever platform you have found us. Look, I've got my uh, my one-shot camera back again. Hello, good to see you. There Reason. he is. <laughs> there I am. Bright and cheery. We had a camera that was... Uh, <laughs> blowing hot air constantly and we had it sent in to be fixed and it's back that's yeah. my job now we so, yeah. now we'll handle the blowing of the hot air <laughs> that's right low-hanging fruit and we the, had yeah, to, yeah. yeah no it's good you had to you had to take that opportunity um but yes it's good to see you all reason for hope in case it's your first time is all about your questions on the bible uh, questions on the bible christian living anything along those lines we receive your questions coming in through our multiple online platforms which i'll go through in just a moment and we have wonderful guests here who will delve into God's Word, the Bible, to find the answers to those questions. So it might be a verse or a passage of Scripture that you'd like explained. Uh, maybe a question about the Bible um, on, on the whole. Maybe Christianity and Christian living. Maybe something you're going through in your life, something uh, that you're experiencing. You'd like a, a, a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective on that. You'd like to honor the Lord and not sure how to do that. Maybe even other belief systems. Anything along those lines, as long as it's an honest question, and as we say, as long as you know, the, the source of the answers on the show is um, the Bible itself. We believe that the Bible is a collection of books, God's word, breathed out by him and very profitable for us in many, many ways. And so we, uh, it's certainly worth this hour of delving into the word with you. So we thank you to you, the viewer, for your questions as they provide our content as we go along today. My name's Dave Robson. I'm your host. And we'll be fielding all those questions as they come on in with us as well today. Pastor Scott Richards, who's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Pasta. Pasta. Pasta, no. Uh, that's an inside <laughs> no joke. Pasta. Anyway. Yes, doing good yeah. today? I'm doing great. Good to see I'm you. I'm really excited to uh, get into the Word today and uh, just excited about where we're being going this weekend in God's Word and our studying the book of Acts. Uh, really fascinating uh, insight into uh, the power of prayer and uh, how one of the greatest demonstrations of the power of prayer we find in the book of Acts mm. uh, was so uh, unbelieved by the people praying that they actually called the person who announced the answer to prayer a maniac. Wow. So if that sparks your interest, <laughs> yes. oh, we'll be talking about that on Sunday. Very nice. Yeah, <laughs> so, on Sunday here at, yeah. at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Um, we go live on these same channels that we're on for our services here on Sunday. So if you want to check that out, or if you're in the Tucson, Arizona um, area and would like uh, to come join us in person, you're more than welcome to do that. Calvary Christian Fellowship, right near Princeton I-10. We certainly don't want to poach you from another church, but if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship, you're welcome to come along and check that out. I'll be showing our website in a moment to give you some more details of that as well. But with us today as well, Pastor Sean Richards. Good to see you. How are you doing to be here? today? Uh, slightly warm. Slightly warm, yeah. Our AC went out as well. Camera's fixed, AC went out, so you can't sense it, but it's kind of warm in here. It's not too bad. Oh, the sufferings we go through <laughs> to bring you, <laughs> our viewing public, this program every day. That's right. <laughs> it must be 78 degrees in here. Yeah, these, these first world <laughs> 84 actually. Yeah, yeah, first first world problems. Indeed. Like right up there. Yeah. yeah. So as we, so. you know, suffer for the Lord over here with it's been slightly <laughs> slightly warm in our seats, we will we will carry on. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for being here and being faithful to this ministry and uh, being available for people's questions. What an exciting hour we were having. Yeah, it's Friday, last day of the week for us here at Reason for Hope. As I mentioned, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here in Tucson, Arizona, Mountain Standard Time. But of course, you can join us all around the world. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. 
Um, so you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. As I mentioned, uh, we have services at the weekend on Sunday, obviously, and uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, we go through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, as a lot of Calvary chapels do. Um, so, yes, please come join us if you're in the area or join us online on these same platforms that I'm going to share with you right now. But for tonight, watch live. If you follow that tab right there on calvarychristianfellowship.com, that will take you to our live page. Anytime we're live, we stream to there. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to the next event and a, and a list of uh, upcoming events as well. So you can check that out to make sure you don't miss a thing. But when we're live, you'll see the video, you can sign in with a username, and then that's one of the methods that you can use to send your question in. Just put it in the chat function right there, and I will be ready and waiting to receive those and throw them out there to these gentlemen. So ccftucson.online.church is the direct link to go there, or follow the link from calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's a great you know base for you if you tend to avoid social media. calvarychristianfellowship.com is our kind of home base, so to speak. So. Uh, but we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash ccftucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook. Uh, you can send your question in on the chat function. Don't forget to like and share and all that good stuff. We'd appreciate that. Um, we'd love to you know, spread this, this ministry. So if you've been blessed, bless somebody else. Share us around. Uh, but there we are on Facebook Live right now as we speak. We have an app as well for your mobile device on our iPhone and uh, um, uh, Android and whatever platform you are on. Go to your App Store, you can find us there, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, download it on your mobile device. And we have a channel on Roku and on Apple TV as well. So add us to the channel in your channel store. You can watch us on your TV. We're on YouTube, of course. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. It's a great place for archives. Every time we've been live, it's archived right there for you. So go to the Live tab and you can catch up on uh, past shows or if you want to recap something or if there's one you missed. And even our services so youtube's a great resource for you again don't forget to like and and uh, subscribe click on the notification bell then you'll get a little little prompt a little poke when we go live and you won't have to miss us so there we are on youtube a reason for hope pastor scott here is on twitter so if you're on twitter you might want to follow along with him scott r4h that's uh, scott letter r number four letter h where he uh, posts all kinds of stuff, highlights from the show and questions and commentary on things going on in the world. He's going to give us a little uh, very interesting uh, development in just a moment. Uh, he was sharing right before the show, uh, but all kinds of things like that. He comment commentates along. So Scott Arthur H on Twitter. And we're on Rumble as well. If you're on that platform, look for a Reason for Hope Bible Q&A. We post videos there as well, right there on Rumble. Again, a Reason for Hope Bible Q&A. You'll find us there. And last but not least, questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address. Questions for Hope spelled out with letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. You can send us an email there anytime, especially if you're on the radio. You are actually listening to the last show we did pre-recorded, so you're kind of day behind. But you can use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll get to that question on our next show. Consider joining us on one of the live platforms when you're home, and, and it's safe to do so. So once again, send your questions in. We love receiving them. And uh, we will try and get to as many today as we can. People always mention um, they hear questions that they have on their heart themselves. So be that person to send your questions in, as I'm sure there's other people have the same uh, question. So be brave, send them in. And as long as it's an honest question, it's, uh, it's a good question. It's a great question. So we appreciate it. Well, with all that being said, now you guys know what to do. Why don't we pause to pray at this point? Sean, would you like to pray today before we take another step further? All righty. Yeah, great. 
Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. Please fill my father and I with your spirit and allow your word to go forth, not just in truth, but relevant to the hearts and minds of those that are listening. We're honored to even speak to one of them, but we ask that you would be the one that ultimately makes this time spent worthwhile because it's done in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as I mentioned, Pastor Scott, you had something you shared before the show, yeah. but something going on. Yeah, Never boy. A moment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, especially if you uh, check in on uh, the dreaded interwebs. Uh, as many of you know, on Wednesday, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk uh, are uh, what we would call uh, social media rivals now. As many of you know, Elon Musk is the uh, one who purchased Twitter. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, known for Facebook uh, and Instagram, uh, and uh, they've been sort of going back and forth and battling with one another. In fact, uh, they are scheduled, believe it or not, to actually have a, uh, a I don't know if it's a boxing match, this fight? No one knows, but the <laughs> twist of fate and irony in this is that the calling card of Twitter was for there to be less censorship, while Threads is trying to be more in terms of censorship, restrictive on what you can and can't say. Yeah. So we're well, going to see some very interesting types of people on either platform. Well, Threads, uh, again, rolled out on Wednesday. According to Business Insider, 10 million users signed up for Threads in the first seven hours of its launch. This, of course, comes from uh, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. And they're definitely real people, yeah. just like their founder. Yes, Don't exactly. you forget it. Exactly. Uh, Threads was built by the Instagram team, and users can simply log on using their Instagram uh, accounts. Now, the interesting thing, as you alluded to, Sean, is uh, right off the bat, some... Uh, more conservative uh, posters went on threads and attempted to post their particular opinions only to find their opinions immediately taken down. Uh, so uh, essentially, uh, I think the marketing uh, approach for threads is they want threads to be what Twitter used to be before, Mar uh, before Elon Musk purchased it, where there were, was all kinds of uh, censorship and government collusion and things along this line. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's an interesting debate uh, that goes on about these things, uh, which of these is going to triumph in the end in the, uh, the marketplace of ideas. But uh, the fascinating thing to me was this. As soon as Threads launched, it uh, put up a graphic. Uh, I don't know if we have that graphic available there uh, that lets you know that you are, in fact, on Threads. Well... <laughs> Fascinatingly, uh, what took off on wildfire uh, across the board, on uh, Twitter anyway, was that uh, the logo for Threads is uh, the number 666. And so if you see there's one six that goes to the right, yeah. another six that goes to the left. And uh, if you see others, uh, examples of this, there's a colored uh, six that outlines oh, the yeah. the initial six. So you've got 666 showing up again. So naturally, uh, in the calm and measured world of social media, uh, people immediately began to uh, hysterically claim that this was, in fact, the mark of the beast, 666. And if you sign up for threads, uh, you have, in essence, taken the mark of the beast and have forfeited any possibility of eternal salvation well <laughs> let me just very briefly but uh, once again emphatically 
I'll let you all know something that can certainly save you a few mailox moments in your journeys through social media. Uh, whenever somebody announces, particularly in this stage of the game, that something is the mark of the beast or that an individual is, in fact, the Antichrist, uh, you know, pretty much we can dismiss that out of hand. Why? Because we know what the Bible says about these subjects. Let's take the Antichrist himself. First of all, uh, we are told in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the one who restrains the Antichrist will do so until he is taken out of the way. That is, until the church is removed, the event we would call the rapture, the Antichrist cannot reveal himself as such. It doesn't mean that he can't be an individual involved with world politics, but he certainly can't uh, start to uh, prosecute his plans for world domination and such until such a thing, uh, such a thing as the rapture takes place. Uh, and so when someone starts playing Antichrist, Antichrist, who's the Antichrist, mm. usually it's some person whose political opinions they don't agree with. Uh, you know, there was a case made that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. There was a case made that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist, Ronald Wilson Reagan. All three of his uh, names have six letters in them and so on. Uh, you know, and uh, all these things ended up, end up coming to naught and really end up uh, being a great reason for non-believers to make uh, fun of and dismiss biblical prophecy. The uh, logo for Threads, I think, fits into that same category. Is it the mark of the beast? Because if you squint at it properly, you can see uh, the number six involved with it somewhat. Well, the best way to save yourself time, effort, and energy is just go to the original source. What is the mark of the beast as it's described in the Bible? Well, in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, uh, we are told that the protege of the Antichrist, an individual called the false prophet, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that he, the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Well, another important insight that we get about the mark of the beast is in Revelation chapter 14, where we are told Regarding the mark of the beast, in verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his right hand, head or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and it goes on from there. Well, what this, in essence, is saying is this. In order to get the mark of the beast, you have to worship the image of the beast. Now, there's all kinds of questions about AI and the singularity and whether this, uh, this image of the beast is tied into these sort of things, uh, which is interesting speculation, but just that, speculation, we can't really know. Uh, the more I see about AI, particularly projects like uh, an AI Bible uh, an AI Jesus who can answer your Bible questions, who evidently has not read the book that describes his own life. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really reticent to jump on these bandwagons. Could these things be paving the way for a future reality? 
that will allow uh, this technology to fulfill these biblical prophecies? Well, certainly, but it is not the mark of the beast. Uh, threads and logging on to threads is not receiving the mark of the beast, unless, of course, Mark Zuckerberg shows up at your house with an idol and image of some world leader and says, oh, by the way, before we can sign you online, you have to bow down and pledge your unswerving fealty to this image and uh, worship it as God. Uh, until that happens, I think you're pretty safe as far as these things are concerned. So, you know, whether Threads is a, a good development or not, I think it's an inevitable development, my two cents worth, because since Elon Musk took over Twitter, uh, he has somewhat taken the reins off of government censorship of the things that can be posted on Twitter. And as we found out in the, the last election, if you can control the avenues, the channels of social media, you can influence an awful lot of people's uh, opinions about different things. You can keep people from, say, making an informed decision to vote if you keep certain information available unavailable to them and offline. So uh, it would only stand to reason that if uh, the powers that be who controlled the last election uh, want to do the same thing for this election and they see that somehow Twitter has wandered off the reservation, so to speak, and uh, is now publishing, you know, things like, uh, you know, say, uh, for instance, Tucker Carlson's uh, posts and, and so on in an uncensored and unfettered way, uh, well, you're going to probably want to have people come over to this other side of things where such ideas can be more neatly controlled. Now, that's a personal opinion of mine. That's not a, a spiritual declaration of mine. Uh, I do believe that uh, the marketplace of ideas should be as unfettered as possible, which is why we entertain questions from atheists and so forth on this particular program, Muslims and those that don't subscribe to a biblical worldview, because we believe that God's truth stands up under examination, and we want people to be able to see that. But uh, I think what you will see is the rise of these kind of alternative platforms uh, like Threads that are an attempt to go back to business as usual before the last election. I think it's a fairly predictable development in light of the fact that uh, the next big election is uh, less than a year away. All right. So, yeah. there you Thank go. Thank you. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. Wow. Interesting stuff for sure. Um, we've got some good questions coming in. I have a question for you guys. While I was in... Um, Line jumper. Maybe I know. <laughs> I can't get to do it. It's perks. Perks yeah. of the job over yeah. here. Yeah. While I was in England, I went to a church that I like to go to um, while I'm over there. And um, they mentioned this thing. And I remember there's... I've heard it before many times, and it's a bit controversial, but they said it was part of an invitation. They said, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, as in he won't, he won't go where he's not invited to go. Is this um, idea of God and the Holy Spirit being a gentleman a biblical thing and an accurate thing? Yeah, when it comes to, I guess, like we talked about yesterday, words mattering, when people use those broad terms, there's obviously been a bit of change as far as the influence of a gentleman is concerned, and even people can twist it into what they like words to mean, and then communication becomes meaningless because no one knows what anyone's talking about. So when we're talking about someone being a gentleman, uh, I actually discovered this in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, mm -hmm. where he was pointing out the word gentleman, like many words, has undergone a lot of changes, where 
we're talking about someone who's a gentleman that you're referring to in the modern day, someone who's acting in a gentle or in a respectable way, mm. whereas the word's original meaning was just someone who owned property. You would be calling them a gentleman whether they were acting like it or not. Right. So if we're asking ourselves, okay, is the Holy Spirit a gentleman, we could essentially say, okay, is the Holy Spirit a human being that owns property? I obviously know that's not what's intended by that. So the first question is, what do you mean by gentleman? What's generally meant in this context of a salvation call is that he's not going to be forceful, but he is going to be conclusive. He'll respect your decision as well, even if it's the wrong decision. Now, what we know about the Holy Spirit is obviously that he's under the authority of the Son and the Father, that the Father delegated authority to the Son to send the Spirit, according to John chapter 16, in his name, right. that the Holy Spirit brings with him all things that belong to the Father. So since we are talking about in the Psalms, the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, all of creation are mine, heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. Uh, right. He does own property. He, he owns the concept of property, so that is a check. Yeah. But as far as the idea of salvation, we're told in the book of Romans, for instance, chapter 10 and verse 9, that the indwelling of the Spirit takes place upon a decision that's made on our own, that if we recognize who God is and what he has done to prove it. That's my paraphrase, of course, but it's whoever calls on the name of the Lord to recognize that word, not gentleman, but literally L-O-R-D, all caps, taken from the ancient, um, I guess, covenant name of God. I, I want to make sure my words are understood. That's the, that's the theme for today. Yeah. But uh, it's the name that God personally revealed himself to his Israel, the becoming one, um, yod hate vow hate the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, take your pick. But the name of God, you recognize Jesus as God, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, salvation, according to Ephesians well, the whole book, but especially the first two chapters, indwelling us is the result of that salvation, and that right. he would then go on to lead us into all truth as advertised by Jesus when he was first sent. So gentlemanly traits, would it be appropriate in the culture that that church was speaking to to say he obeys orders, he's not a tyrant, he doesn't mm -hmm. force himself on all of creation, he was sent by the Son because the Father permitted him to do so. And we see in other passages, like in Isaiah, uh, six, uh, what was it, uh, 64 and verse 18, clarify that, because that's an important one. Um, uh, is it 48, 16? Anyway, um, God speaking, God the Son in particular says... Isaiah 48, 16. 48, 16, yeah. thank yeah. you. I knew it wasn't 68, because that's more chapters that are in the book, but I remember... Yeah, it ends at 66, it. so we can eliminate that. But uh, <laughs> while the thought's still trailing off, and I still have your attention, big if, the idea of the Spirit being sent by the Son is, of course, one that shows that he's under authority, and that he's going to respect terms and limits. That's a gentlemanly trait, I think. The second aspect we see of the Spirit is not only does he regard authority, but he regards our decisions as far as our relationship with him. Uh, for instance, when we saw the glory depart from the temple, we see that it was a very gradual, it was a very reluctant process in the book of Ezekiel, but one that he ultimately acknowledged. Why? Because the people of Israel did not want him there. So he not only enters 
on terms and conditions, but he leaves according to those same conditions. Mm-hmm. If you don't want me, I will leave. If you do want me, I will come into you. I will not leave you orphans. That's a quote. But if we then also ask, okay, so his entries and his exits are gentle in that sense, respectable, uh, not forceful. The question then is, what does he do while he's there? Is he abrasive? Is he forceful? Or do we have the opportunity to, I guess, um, see what the Holy Spirit's going to do, but even, dare I say, limit his work on those same conditions? And yes, we do see that as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when the Holy Spirit's exercising what we call spiritual gifts, it notes explicitly that this isn't going to be something that dominates your will. It's not going to be done out of control. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. So if a legitimate spiritual gift, and I'm going to say this intentionally because it might answer some other questions down the road, a legitimate spiritual gift is being exercised. It's not going to dominate your will. It's not only going to be done decently and in order, another gentlemanly trait, but it's also going to fall in line with our ability to control ourselves, that we'll know when the time and place is for those things to be exercised. And if you read chapter 12, the whole flow of the conversation, the Holy Spirit's the one designating gifts as He wills. This isn't a force, this is a person directing gifts as He sees fit. So in His entry, He will acknowledge terms and authority over Him. God the Son and God the Father. In His exit, He will permit those who refuse Him to do so. He won't force himself to, uh, I guess, remain in our lives or to become a part of our lives at all if we don't want him, that we can, in fact, resist that salvific work. Otherwise, no one would ever not be saved. The third is that while he's in our lives, the things that he does in and through our lives are completely voluntary. He won't force us to blurt out in tongues or to speak prophecy or fill in your spiritual gift. It's an opportunity that he gives to us. Now, if that's what's meant by gentlemanly, not forceful, respectable, acknowledges our will, but ultimately provides what's best for us, then yes, the Holy Spirit's a gentleman, and we can cite chapter and verse for that. Yeah, very good. Yeah, thanks for that. That makes absolute sense. Yeah, I guess the best way I've heard it uh, expressed is uh, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He didn't say, Behold, I stand at the door, I'm going to huff and puff and blow your door down. Right. So, so yeah. God the yeah. Son's a gentleman yeah. too. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Thanks for that. We have a question from Hip, who uh, uh, followed up from yesterday. So thank you for doing that. Questions uh, based around Christianity being offensive. Uh, they had a conversation with someone else who was saying, why is Christianity so offensive um, and not received when witnessing? Maybe we shouldn't try to persuade people or even share our faith because it's so offensive to people. And obviously this person they were talking to um, wasn't a believer. They said, there's many ways to God. We don't even know if God is true. So, you know, why should we even share him? But Well, from that I'm point of view, I couldn't argue with that. If uh, we really don't even know there's a God, yeah. uh, you know, maybe we should just follow the advice that... Uh, you know, your mom gave you about things you'd discuss in polite company. Right. Stay away from politics and religion altogether. And that would uh, result in the complete collapse of all social media right there. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, if there is a God, and in fact, if the this God has revealed himself to us and has revealed to us what it means to have a relationship with him, well, then that's something that's very important for us to understand. But understand something, you know, truth is by definition, divisive, because there are going to be people that will accept it and people who will 
reject it. I think of uh, Ted Koppel's famous uh, graduation address at Duke University, where he said, uh, truth best understood is not a tap on the shoulder, but a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the 10 suggestions, but the 10 commandments. And ever since, as soon as God says this is right and this is wrong, we as human beings who from the get-go have a fallen rebellious nature, if you don't believe that's true, you've never spent much time around a two-year-old, uh, the, the fact of the matter is one thing we do better than anything else is rebel, uh, especially against authority. And uh, it's a sign that we as human beings have rebelled against the ultimate authority. So when God comes on the scene and says, thou shalt or thou shalt not, our immediate response is, well, we'll see about that. Yeah. And uh, even to our own detriment, even to our own destruction, we pursue things, stimulating our nerve endings, trying to come up with our own ideas about God and how he should be worshipped, instead of revelation, speculation, and so on. And if you dare to say, well, uh, what if God has spoken? Then that is an offense to people. That's one of the offenses there. First Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse 18, the Apostle Paul talked about how properly preached uh, the message of Christ is going to be befuddling mm. at best right. to a non-believer. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Why is the message foolish? It's not because it is foolhardy, but from the perspective of people in this world, it seems foolish because it runs so counter to our own human pride and our own human ideas. Verse 22, Paul says, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So when we put forth this idea and ask this question to the average non-believer, has God really spoken? Well, the average non-believer goes, well, um, you know, maybe in some vague sort of ethereal, otherworldly, oh, you know, you're so cute, don't change a thing, uh, kind of a manner. Uh, you know, ideas about religions where people say, well, that's what God looks like to me. Uh, well, all well and good to have these speculations, but if God has in fact spoken to us, if God has visited this planet in the person of Jesus Christ, if he has provided incontrovertible evidence of that fact by living a sinless life, by teaching like no one before or since has taught in a way that has impacted the entire world regardless of culture or geography, if uh, this person demonstrated power not just over nature but over death itself, uh, died on a cruel Roman cross as he predicted he would for the sins of the world, rose again in a moment of history to show that he paid the price for our sins, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, as the scripture says he has. If this is in fact the case, and I believe, as we talked about yesterday in the program, there's significant historical evidence to support this case, uh, 
Well, then we should run, not walk to our nearest Bible. You know, when, when you know, for instance, uh, I guess an example of this is uh, when I've gone to Bible studies and sometimes people have said, well, this is what this verse means to me. Mm. Well, if what you're saying is this verse is significant and meaningful to me and practically applied, great, knock yourself out. But if it's like, well, this is what it means to me and I really, you know, this is my, just my take, I really don't care what that verse means to you. I don't mean to sound kind of nasty and, and confrontive here. I really don't care what your take is about God. I care what God's take is about himself. I care what God says that verse means. And by taking a look at a verse in its context, grammatically, literally, historically, uh, we can, uh, the vast majority of verses that we find in the entire Bible, uh, understand very clearly what it says. And it, it inevitably brings us back uh, to that place that Mark Twain described. It ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that disturb me. It's those parts of the Bible that I do understand that disturb me. Mm-hmm. So if we've got a message that rattles our cages, you know, that uh, we've got a problem. Our sin has separated us from God. We see it demonstrated around us each and every day. But God has done something about that. He's provided a way back to a relationship with him by sending his son to die for us and rise from the dead so that we could have life. Uh, We are also going to be judged one day based on whether we accepted or rejected God's offer of forgiveness. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Uh, if you've accepted that, good on you. Heaven's doors will be open to you. If you rejected that, well, you're going to have to present your own life and your own righteousness as uh, your qualification for getting into heaven. And if I know anything about human beings from observing myself, my chances of getting into heaven based upon my spotless track record of righteousness uh, beyond slim and none yeah right yeah not not a chance in the world yeah so you know you need a perfect life to get into heaven you can get that perfect life by either trying to say i'm a pretty good person you know i'll take my chances and i've heard non-believers that i really love say these sort of things to me or you can say no uh eternity's too long a bargain i i need to know that i'm going to be accepted by god on the other side and so it's very important for me to look at what Jesus had to say on the subject. If I think that Jesus is a good person and a great teacher, what do I think about what he taught? Yeah, that's right. So. Especially when we know what the, the mark is that we're trying to reach, the yeah. holy, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's a high commentary. Anything to add to that, Tom Sean? Yeah, if you encounter someone who pulls the, I guess, tried and true 2010 slogan, that offends me, therefore the conversation's over, make them play by their own rules. Because understand that's exactly what the atheist, the non-Christian is trying to do to you, but it's different when they do it. Because remember, if it's wrong to offend somebody, then to call the entire basis of our eternal hope and the means by which of our salvation and the claims of the person who loved us more than anyone else in history is based on a fraud and a lie, that's offensive to me. So why is it that you get to keep talking, but I have to stop? These are the sort of terms and conditions that can't exist because they have to be applied unequally. If someone starts imposing that sort of unreasonable standard on you, don't let them get away with it. Learn to recognize those things and get the conversation back into something a lot more consistent, even though if that's not the way the world works right now. It still can be the way that you talk. And if that gives the Holy Spirit room to maybe uh, throw in some conviction, that's probably because it's already happening. Yeah. <laughs> because that's generally when people tend to be the most, 
I guess, uh, I want to use a fancy word for it, most angy about things, is when the Holy Spirit's kind of tapping at the core of the issue and they want you to stop. So. Yeah, that's right. Well, Hip, thank you for that question. Thanks for hanging in there with uh, your question for a couple of days. Hope that helps you out. Uh, we have a question from uh, Thompson. Why did Satan contend for the body of Moses? And if Moses is one of the two witnesses, why did he have to die twice when he was already enjoying heaven? Yeah, is well, Thompson's question. Yeah, well, two Thompson's there. referring to the book of Jude, and uh, in Jude, Jude is dealing with the idea of false teachers uh, and their rebellious attitude. And in verse eight of Jude, only one chapter, so you don't have to say Jude chapter one. Just a little uh, pro tip for you out there. Chapter Jude. Yeah. Uh, verse eight says, "Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries." Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, so here we have in Jude this uh, description that is probably taken from an apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. Now, whether that apocryphal book uh, was the source of this or whether that apocryphal book borrowed from this revelation that Jude, in fact, had, uh, it's kind of the chicken and the egg argument there. We could certainly talk about that. But why was there a dispute between Michael and Satan about the body of Moses? Well, probably the easiest way to answer that is to take a look at how the people of Israel dealt with one artifact that came from the ministry of Moses beyond, say, the Ark of the Covenant and so on. It was the bronze serpent on the pole. Uh, you might recall in the book of Numbers, uh, there was a, a rebellion against God, and so uh, the people of Israel got in this place where there were these fiery serpents. Uh, most believe these are fire adders, uh, which have a really nasty habit of burying themselves down in the sand, so only the tops of their little eyes are seen. Uh, very poisonous uh, creatures, and you can be into a whole nest of them, not even realize it, while walking across a sandy area, and people are getting bit. Well, God said to the people, to Moses, make an image of a fiery serpent, one of these fire adders, and put it on a pole and tell anyone who is struck that if they look at that pole, uh, the, the adder on the pole, they'll be healed uh, and they'll be saved from all of that. Well, you know, was that a legitimate thing to do? Well, apparently, according to Jesus, it was. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the fiery serpent, the wilderness so the son of man may be lifted up in other words we'll be delivered from death by taking a look at jesus lifted up on the cross and putting our faith and our trust in him but uh, the people of israel between jesus and moses well they kind of messed up the whole thing in that they looked at this thing and they said wow god did miraculous healings through this during the time of moses and we got it here in the temple look at this this is you know really amazing that you know read the story and then Pretty soon it morphed into, yeah, this ar artifact here. Boy, there was healing that was done when people looked at this artifact. And then it morphed into, yeah, this artifact is what gives you healing. Right. And it became this God of healing they would look at, this idol, and they would bow down to it and seek healing from it. They completely removed the God of Israel from it all. They instead just looked at this, this object here got so bad that uh, a godly king of Israel looked at it and uh, broke it in pieces and called it Nehushtan, which means a worthless piece of bronze. Uh, in other words, it completely missed the mark. 
So what does this have to do with Jude and Michael and Satan contending over the body of Moses? Well, we're told in the scripture that Moses dies uh, again in the, uh, the Jordan side of uh, the promised land. He isn't allowed to go into the promised land and God buries him in an unknown site on Mount Nebo. We don't know where that site is. So uh, why does God do this? Why does he leave this site uh, unseen, if you will? Because you know, stop and imagine Moses, you know, the big M. I mean, he is just venerated beyond any other prophet in Judaism, and uh, rightly so. A huge part of the revelation we have of God came through the ministry and life of Moses. Yeah. But you know, as we know, sometimes we tend to follow the man rather than the ministry. And boy, if the people of Israel got that uh, cattywampus over uh, the bronze serpent, could you imagine what would happen if the burial place of Moses was made available to them? Oh my goodness, we gotta go on a pilgrimage here. And oh my goodness, maybe this little sand that's in this cave where God, maybe this has, you know, Moses, you know, and I'll get prophetic revelations from that or, or I'll be able to do what Moses did. And, 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 you know, pretty soon it's Moses, Moses, Moses. We forget about the God of Moses. No wonder Satan would have a vested interest in making sure that body of Moses was preserved in a sense, uh, made available to people. This would be an idol to end all idols for the people of Israel. And it's really interesting, in the middle of all this, uh, Michael, taking on Satan directly, didn't offer a reviling accusation. He didn't scream at him or tell the devil what he thought about him and you know his little imps and demons and minions and such. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. And I think there's a really important thing for us when we come face to face with spiritual warfare, don't get involved in some kind of long diatribe about Satan and how much you hate him. I've gone to prayer meetings, God, goodness sake, where people spend more time in that prayer meeting telling Satan how much they hated him than they did talking to God. Satan's all over that. As long right. as you're talking to him, you're not talking to God. Right. And, and so I think that same principle uh, applies there. So, uh, you know, that really is uh, what is going on in that set of circumstances. And I think it's a real warning to us. Sometimes, uh, you know, on uh, social media, I'll see put, people put out questions like saying, if you had to be on a desert island, it could only have one pastor's teaching for the next 20 years, which pastor would you choose? And, you know, my response to all that is, well, how about if you just get a hold of a Bible and settle on that? Yeah. You know, and I think any pastor worth his salt is going to be able to say and tell you, to, you know, follow me as I follow Christ, but man, eat the meat and spit out the bones because, you know, I'm human just like you. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit's ministry, faith in Jesus, our confidence in God the Father's love for us, that's the foundation for the Christian life. You yeah, well, and it's not the only time that this kind of conversation's been had with that kind of audience and adversary, pun intended. In Zechariah 3, we see the exact same situation happening between the angel of the Lord right. and the high priest Joshua, also intentional foreshadowing there. But notice the angel of the Lord we've good reason to believe God the Son here, doesn't bring up an accusation against Lucifer. He says, the Lord rebuke
rebuke you. He defers right. to the Father and simply serves as the Savior to this priest. He cleanses him from his filthy rags, and he clothes him in clean robes. Right. So, and then goes on to explain that. But the second part of the question in noting, I'll just be brief about this, there's two possible venues that both lead us to the same place as far as a handling of extra-biblical text. Was this from the assumption of Moses, which was not divinely inspired writing? And he's referencing it to make a point with Zechariah 3's point also in mind. That's allowed, if that's true, because we see, for example, Paul the Apostle acknowledging truth from extra-biblical sources if it fulfills a biblically accurate point. Like the Greek philosopher Epimenides. Yeah, quoted at least three times in his writings. But if, on the other hand, we're to say, no, this was something that was divinely revealed to Jude specifically for this purpose, well, again, how does that differ from the interaction with Zechariah? The point of the revelation was what? These false prophets are a lot of talk. Don't return talk for talk. God will deal with them. You follow the example of Michael here. That's right. He defers to the Lord in dealing with the false teacher of false teachers. If you're dealing with a little a or a little s Satan, then just let God ultimately deal with them. You keep preaching the truth. And, and you know the other thing that really comes into play in all of this is in Revelation chapter 12, we are told that in a future date Michael is going to kick Satan's you know what. Yeah, he's, he's going to kick, kick him out of heaven. And that so. is with the permission of the Father. Yeah. But there was another part of the conversation regarding the absurdity of a resurrection for Moses. Uh, you mentioned him being of the two witnesses. That's a maybe, and I'll give the reasons why I would think so, but we're not going to assume that. Uh, first of all, in Revelation chapter 11, this is after the description of the, uh, I guess, counterfeit temple that will be built during this time will be... It notes in verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth direct reference to Zechariah chapter 4. But it then goes on to say, if anyone wants to harm them, so keep track of this, what specific miracles are mentioned in this? This is how we would form our conclusion. Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies, and if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. They have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, it mentions all plagues. A rather uh, amusing observation was made by Levi Lusco in saying, I wonder if they're going to have any fun with this, but th- that's just an aside. The idea is that these two witnesses, who, by the way, are not named in the passage, are at least given a description as far as what they do. Now, what are we told? Fire comes out and strikes their enemies. Now, there was one and only one prophet in the Old Testament that was noted that when someone wanted to harm him, fire came out of heaven, not his mouth, granted, but heaven, and as well in a confrontation with prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. What was his name? That was Moses, or Elijah, I should say. We're we're jumping the gun here. It was Elijah. And note, according to Malachi chapter 4, Jews are literally expecting a physical return of Elijah. And note, he's not complaining, but we'll get to that in a second. The second individual in this, and I'm going to badger this point home because I want it to be understood as far as our methodology, it also mentions three and a half years of their testimony. It's not going to rain, which is 
bad. We know Very that. Elijah, yeah. Well, what, yeah. what was the ministry of Elijah in First Kings? He prayed during the reign of King Ahab, and for three and a half years, the same amount of time that will constitute the first half of the tribulation, what? No rain during his ministry. It's not going to rain there as he's prophesying. Does I mean globally? I don't think so, but definitely where he's at, and that's going to be tough because Jerusalem's kind of like here. But the point being made is this. When we're talking about the miracles that are cited, direct references to Elijah along with Malachi chapter 4. Now, in the spirit of all consistency, then, what other miracle is mentioned? Turning waters to blood. Now, all plagues is pretty broad, but why mention turning waters to blood? Well, if we're coming to the conclusion, that's probably Elijah because they're doing Elijah-like things, who's the other guy? Well, there wasn't any waters turning to blood during the ministry of Elijah, wasn't during the time of Isaiah, wasn't during the time of Micaiah or any of these other prophets. One prophet and one prophet alone. Aaron was a high priest. Note that. Moses was the prophet. Who in history turned water to blood as a representation of God? Moses. And I, I, I spelled the beans early, yeah. but note that point. So if we're to conclude this is Moses, it's going to be with a special emphasis on what we're told about what they're doing. But we aren't given a name, so we need to be, I, I'd say not hands in, but at least hands above, and saying, I'm pretty certain that's what this is. Don't commit to it, but at least yeah. say that makes sense. Yeah. There's other people who would come up with theories and say, well, because Enoch was taken up into heaven, Elijah was taken up to heaven, it's going to be Elijah and Enoch. Some people say because of the immediate prior chapter, <laughs> it says you must prophesy again to many nations, tongues, and kings, speaking to the Apostle John. They say it's the Apostle John. I grant all those are valid options, but because of the actual text itself, I'd say that would take priority. So not wrong as far as it possibly being Moses, but understand as far as the idea of, oh, I was enjoying heaven, why do I have to go back to earth? Well, understand that's no more going to be a bummer than for Jesus to have left heavenly glory. He does all things by nature, what? That please the Father. It pleased him to what? Crush him, yeah. according to Isaiah 53. Yeah. That when Jesus went to the cross, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Right. That his ultimate joy and purpose was in pleasing the Father. And when we're told that we're in heavenly glory, what is our nature going to be like? We're going to be like Jesus right. and wanting to please the Father. So if God's purpose is not just for Moses, but for Lazarus, for Jairus's daughter, for the widow's son, for the guy who got his body dropped on Elijah's grave and got resuscitated as a result of that. Don't forget Eutychus and the Dorcas who fell out of the window when Paul was preaching all night. <laughs> so <laughs> mood yeah. and Dorcas and plenty of other people who have been physically restored to this earth after possibly entering into heaven and glory. Even the Apostle Paul, if we take First Corinthians twelve, as subtle as a brick to the head yeah. as far as a hint is concerned. Yeah. It's not going to be a bummer, is the point. The Father would have a purpose for you on this earth. You're going to be just as chill with that as you would be with anything else in heaven, because you're honoring the Father. And guess what? We're going to get a chance to, because after the rapture, seven years later, we're going to return with Jesus. That's right. So we're going to have seven years in heavenly glory yeah. to come back with him. The, the point uh, of that I think takes the sting out of it, or you know, kind of like the, ooh, you know, I was enjoying heaven, now I'm back here, is what makes heaven heaven? Well... This is eternal life. You know, you, the true and living God, and Jesus Christ, the one you've sent. Jesus said in John 14, in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
I, in my father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, a huge component of what's going to make heaven heaven is where Jesus is, we're going to be. So if Jesus is coming back to rule and reign on earth for a thousand years, I kind of want to be there because I want to be close to Jesus. I'm sure Moses and Elijah would feel the same way. Yeah, heaven in two words, with Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So, very good. Yeah. Well, thank you, Thompson, for that, that question. hope that helps you out. Let's try and uh, squeeze at least one more in here. Well, we guys. got maybe yeah, two we, or three. Yeah, we, yeah, can, we do can do that. Uh, Matt D., uh, he's intrigued by Ben, uh, ben Shapiro, uh, who's uh, he's been getting a lot of time on, online, but he's a Jew but doesn't have the faith in Jesus as Messiah. Uh, he's highly intelligent, and I agree with a good amount of what he says. I just can't wrap my mind around someone smart rejecting Jesus. And I guess the wider question is, why do and did the Jewish people reject Jesus? How can they do that? No one rejects Jesus on the basis of intellect alone. As mm. far as uh, Ben Shapiro's personal convictions, being a Hebrew himself, I don't know if he's from the tribe of Judah, so I like to just say Hebrew. Uh, Romans 9 through 11 will be your most direct answer. I'll just give a few passages to summarize this. Uh, verse 1, Paul speaking, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, and um, there's a wrinkle in the text there, and glory, the covenants, and giving of the law, service to God, and the promises of whom the fathers of the... Uh, uh, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not the word of God that has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are children in the flesh, not who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son." Then it goes on to note, uh, Rebecca's noting this in a distinction of spirit between the two brothers, Isaac I have loved, uh, or Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So the point of emphasis is there's a spiritual relationship with God and there's a physical association with people God used in history. And we all share Paul the Apostle's heart. The Holy Spirit longs for the restoration of his chosen people back right. to him. Right. But as we read in chapter 11, blindness is in part has come in part for you and I's benefit, that the Gentiles are getting this benefit to urge them to jealousy. Now note, with people like Ben Shapiro being in this state of spiritual blindness, and no, it's not a purposeful predestination to damnation, it's noting that at this time, in his case, as far as the Jewish nation is concerned, more of the people of Israel are coming to Christ as a demographic is concerned than any other ethnic group on the planet. Let's just settle that for once and for all. But for people like Ben Shapiro, for people uh, like Dennis Prager and plenty of other people with Hebrew descent, with more reason to believe in their Messiah than we do, we look at them and we're so grieved because of how much they're missing out on. But we're told what? If the blessing to the whole world came by the people of Israel being cut off, how much more their acceptance and restoration. Now, has God cast away his people? All of the last statistic I gave, but let's just stick to the text. Certainly not, for I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, yeah. I kind of missed that boat if the fact that the, all of the early Christians were Jews and most of the Jews in the world today are Christians. But the point of emphasis needs to be understood in that. 
salvation isn't based on intellect, it's an inward work of the Spirit. And regardless of Ben Shapiro's academic perks, our prayers need to be continually for him, for his family, and for his people to call on the name of their Messiah, because that's something we're looking forward to as well, not just for their benefit, but the whole world. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Um, another quick question. Taylor was, uh, commented that uh, he feels like he's been kind of mean lately, and what should he do? What, what can we do if we're feeling like a little bit off and we know we're kind of off? Well, as, as well, someone who's well, never yeah. been accused of ever being mean before, <laughs> let, me, well, yeah. let, let me tackle that one. Yeah. You know, the, if we're feeling like we're being mean, uh, you know, that's the manifestation of anger. Yeah. You know, and it's really important to understand that anger always covers fear. And fear is this emotion we have when we really feel in our heart of hearts that sooner or later we're going to be abandoned, uh, that, uh, mm. the, that, that there, there's no good outcome for our lives. We're going to be rejected and alone. Mm. And there's a lot of good evidence to support that conclusion if you put your faith and trust in people in this world. Sometimes they're there for you, a lot of times they're not. Yep. And we have a lot of these experiences. This fear begins running the show in our lives. So if fear is the problem, you know, what's the answer, Talon? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, we are told God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So if I'm feeling fearful at a particular, uh, I'm feeling angry at a particular time, uh, you know, I can beat myself up for feeling angry. Or I can take anger, even a negative emotion like that, as God's not-so-subtle tap on the shoulder. It's telling me something. I've somehow drifted from trusting in God, and I'm trusting in myself. And the more I trust in myself, the more fearful I become, the more uh, fearful I become, the more convinced I'm, I am that uh, it's all not going to be well for me in the end. So if that's the problem, it's also the prescription, yeah. right? Faith is not just the answer to unbelief. It's also the answer to anger. Yeah. Because, you know, if I'm angry, if I'm filled with rage about things and frustrated because I'm not getting my way, underneath it all is that fear of abandonment. Mm. And if we come back to the Lord and we say, okay, Lord, you say in your word, uh, I will never leave you and never forsake you. Uh, and we put our trust in that. Boy, it's amazing how the boiling pot of anger kind of goes down. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for speaking out, Taylor. Hope that helps you out. We'll see you back here on Monday. It's the weekend. God bless you guys. Thanks for being part of the Reason. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.